The Ministry Network podcast is sponsored by Westminster Theological Seminary. You may be wondering, what's it like to study at Westminster? I had the chance to ask Dr. Stephen Nichols this question. Dr. Nichols is a graduate of Westminster, Chief Academic Officer at Ligonier Ministries, and the President of Reformation Bible College. This is what he had to say. Well, it's a wonderful place. I'd always held Westminster up on a pedestal, and the years that I spent there were just delightful years. I'm really glad that it's a part of who I am. You too can become a graduate of Westminster by enrolling in one of our degree programs, like our Masters of Divinity, now offered online for the very first time. To learn more, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. Now, on to our episode. Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. This episode is the second of a two-part conversation with Rachel Denhollander, accomplished lawyer, author, and speaker. If you haven't yet, before you listen to this episode, go back and listen to our first conversation with Rachel about abuse and the church. In this episode, we'll talk with Rachel about Larry Nasser, one of the most prolific sexual abusers in recent history. Rachel led a heroic case against Larry Nasser, which led to his conviction of first-degree criminal sexual assault on 10 accounts. Now, let's hear from Rachel. To set the context for your interactions with Larry Nasser, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it was like being a gymnast and some of the trauma and difficulties that were involved in that sport? Yeah. Uh, so I was, at first, I was actually really blessed because by and large, I had a very healthy experience in the gymnastics community. I had a coach who was very encouraging. He took our health seriously. He took nutrition and hydration seriously. And so I did not experience the abusive environment that really the vast majority of gymnasts do experience. And I'm very grateful for that. That being said, it's just a very difficult sport. You know, it's, it's a very psychologically intensive sport, and it's also a physically difficult sport. And I didn't start till I was much older. I was actually almost 12 by the time I started gymnastics. So I was never destined to be anything great, but it was just something that I loved. But my body really wasn't cut out for it. And so within a couple of years, I was experiencing a lot of chronic wrist and back pain just from the constant stress and pounding. And you know, a lot of doctors are not terribly skilled in handling gymnastics injuries. It's kind of an insular sport. Not a lot of people understand the physics of it. And so the sports medicine doctors in my hometown had just been very ineffective at providing any sort of guidance or diagnostics for what I was experiencing. And so at that point, we decided to go and see Larry. And Larry was the team physician for the USA Gymnastics Olympic team. He was the medical coordinator for all of our elite gymnasts, all of our elite female gymnasts. He was also the medical doctor for Michigan State University's gymnastics team. He occasionally treated other elite athletes from other sports. He had written a book. He owned patents. He was renowned literally throughout the world as one of the best sports medicine physicians, particularly in the sport of gymnastics, but not limited to the sport of gymnastics. Uh, And so we really thought we were privileged to get a chance to see him. Yeah, And a lot of my thought process was, if this is who these organizations trust to see their best athletes, it's a privilege to get to see him too. Yeah, as just a low-level athlete myself. And it sounds like what is the case that he used that power that came from his reputation and expertise to abuse, I mean, so many young girls. Could you tell us a little bit about his grooming process, particularly so that people in our network can understand that it does often fly under the radar if you don't know what you're looking for? Yeah. 
I, you know, that's something I think back on a lot, even myself and as a parent looking back and saying, at what point should I have known? Yeah, at what point should I have seen that something was wrong? And could I have even stopped the abuse before something ever happened? Because abusers are very, very skilled manipulators. They understand the type of persona to put forward. They understand how to form relationships with the community around them, as well as with the victim. And they understand the types of dynamics that are more likely to keep a victim silent. And so oftentimes this will look like the type of behavior that would normally assure us that someone is a good person. They're very personable people. You know, they don't feel sleazy, if that makes sense. You know, an abuser's mm-hmm. not usually the guy in the long trench coat or a hoodie. Right. Yeah. Abusers are very personable people. They demonstrate care and concern and compassion. They're skilled conversationalists. They know how to enter your life and how to bring you into their life in a way that creates strong personal bond and creates a feeling of knowing each other well. They often use uh, innocent touch to normalize the victim and the community around them to this child being touched. You know, so side hugs, putting their hand on their shoulder, you know, very simple things, again, that oftentimes we engage in, in normal, healthy interaction, abusers use in a different way and to a different degree. They often pay special attention to their victims, small gifts, tokens of affection, again, things that create an emotional bond with the people around them. And in addition to this, they also know the types of dynamics that make it look like abuse couldn't have happened. Uh, So for example, in Larry's case, when he would sexually abuse, he almost always had a parent in the room, usually just a foot or two from their child. And he was able to hide where his hands were using towels or medical drapes, And so, you know, the parents never knew they needed to ask their child what was going on because it never even occurred to them that Larry could be carrying on a conversation with them while sexually abusing their daughters. But actually, this dynamic of abusing out in the open is not uncommon. Abusers often abuse in circumstances where it appears impossible that abuse could occur because they know two things. They know that it will create shock and confusion in their victim. They also know that the normal community response is going to be, that's not possible. And so it not only keeps the victim confused and shocked, it also helps insulate them from any disclosures the victim might make. Because the natural response, whenever a victim discloses, is for the person who heard the disclosure to say, that's not possible because. And then there will be a list of reasons why that person couldn't be an abuser or the abuse couldn't have happened in the way described. And that's intentional. And what we have to understand as a community is that when we have that initial response, that's not possible. We've actually done exactly what the abuser counted on us doing. We've done exactly what they wanted us to do. And Larry was skilled at it, but he's not alone. Most abusers are. So in 2016, you decided to come forward and to be one of the people that spoke out against Larry Nasser. You spoke to reporters and actually disclosed what happened. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering... Your book opens up with just this captivating story about the details of how it happened. You're with your family. I think that you had one of your really young children with you. (laughs) And I'm just- All of them. (laughs) All of them. Yeah, goodness. And yet you you still did it. And I would just love for you to, to share a little bit about where that internal strength to come forward and take on that risk when you had everything to lose in a sense, Mm -hmm. Uh, where that came from. And how you would encourage other victims who are struggling with whether to disclose how to find that strength for themselves. Yeah. 
I think the very first thing that it's important to understand about my disclosure, because again, I get this question all the time, how did you find the strength to finally disclose? I was always willing to disclose. It was not a matter of finding the strength. It was a matter of finding the opportunity to be heard. Uh, In fact, when I was 17 and I told my mom what had happened and we began to realize who Larry really was, we didn't understand anywhere near the depth of it at that time, but we did know he was a sexual abuser at around when I was around 17 years old. And my mom and I had that conversation, what do we do with this? And at that time, I said to my mom, I can't do this quietly. Something's going to have to happen to take control from these organizations, to get the narrative outside of Larry's control and outside of the control of USAG and MSU. I'm going to have to have press involvement. And I knew that at 17, I knew that. And we didn't know how to make that happen. We actually talked about going down to the news station when I was 17 and giving them the story and seeing if we could get somebody to pick it up. But media reporting was very different on sexual assault back then compared to where we are now. And we just had no way of making that happen. And so I do think the most important thing to understand is that it wasn't a willingness all of a sudden to report. It was the opportunity. And that's why it is so incumbent on us as the community to make those opportunities available to survivors, to communicate that they will be taken seriously. And that's what I found in the Indie Star when I opened my computer that morning and I saw the article that they had written on USA Gymnastics and how USA Gymnastics had been burying reports of member coaches I read that article, and there were a couple of very key things that stood out to me. The first was that this relatively small newspaper, the Indie Star, had spent almost a year, a year of time and resources on investigating the story. That meant that it mattered to them and that they understood why it mattered. I could also tell by the way those reporters reported the stories that they understood trauma. They understood what evidence looked like. They understood normal victim responses so that they would be able to weed through the evidence brought to them and know what was and wasn't probative. They understood how abusers operated. So they weren't going to have the knee-jerk, oh no, not that person type of community response. And because I could tell they understood those dynamics, I knew that was the that was the first chance I ever saw of being believed. And beyond that, it was, you know, it was something I was always willing to do. But I did know what it was going to cost. And it was a very painful decision to make because I knew exactly what was going to be coming if that story became public. you know, and, and unfortunately, literally everything I predicted that day at the computer, right down to losing our current church, did come true uh, and has continued to come true because the societal responses to abuse are just that predictable. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about those risks that you took on and that were ultimately realized? I think there are, there are a number of layers to what happens when a survivor discloses and tries to get justice and to stop an abuser. You know, the very first one, of course, is that instantaneous community response uh, that you typically receive because every abuser and victim is surrounded by a community, whether it's a school community, a physical community, a church community, there's always a community surrounding the victim and abuser. And the most typical response that the victim is going to receive uh, is an attack against their character. They're lying, they're making it up, they're being oversensitive, maybe they want money, maybe they are disgruntled with this particular person. But the instantaneous knee-jerk response is always to ascribe some sort of ulterior motive to the victim other than telling the truth and to attack the victim's character, to attack the victim's credibility. And one of the things that we need to understand is, you know, we, we always say, well, it's, you know, it's innocent until proven guilty. But when you automatically decide that it's likely the victim is telling the truth, then you're not presuming the victim is innocent of lying until proven guilty either. And so we do make very quick snap judgment calls on the character and the integrity and the veracity of the victim who is disclosed 
and we don't wait for the evidence. So you have that layer of instantaneous community response, which is deeply painful because that typically means that the victim loses the people that are closest to them, their school, their church, their friends, their neighbors. And it's very, very painful. And it leaves them with little to no resources and support. In addition to that is the incredible uphill battle that the victim faces when they disclose to police. You know, it starts a process that often requires, that always requires extensive interviews on the abuse where the details that are given just have to be incredibly descriptive. Often police interviews take two to three hours to complete. And then there are layers upon layers upon layers of follow-up questions, extremely detailed interview questions. You know, everything from what were the facial expressions of your abuser to did they say anything to how exactly do you know where their hands were? You know, every detail has to be disclosed and you don't get the choice to say no anymore. You know, you didn't get the choice to be abused and now you don't get the choice with who you say, who you say these things to. In addition to that, getting to any kind of criminal charges is an incredibly uphill battle. Out of every 300 rapes reported to the police, only about seven result in indictment, six result in conviction, and less than five result in jail time. And the average length of a jail sentence for a sexual abuser, according to the Department of Justice, is actually less than the average length of sentence for possession of a controlled substance. You can literally serve more time in jail for possessing marijuana than for raping a child. So you look at these statistics, and for a victim, the choice to come forward is the choice to relinquish all control. It's the choice to be at the beck and call of the court system, to relive every detail of their worst memory to whoever asks for it. If you get really lucky, you'll get to court where you get to relive all those details in front of your abuser, knowing he shares the same memories and that he loved it and relished it and that you're giving him exactly what he wanted, which is an insight into who you are and how you responded. And in addition to that, all that information has to go to members of the jury. So in cases where a medical exam is required, you know, victims who undergo a rape kit exam, they have to have very explicit photos taken to document any potential injuries from the rape. And then all those photos of their most private areas go to the members of the jury and they go to their abuser and the defense team. You are at the complete mercy of the justice system over and over and over again. Meanwhile, you've lost most likely, and most of the time you've lost your entire community and support system, and you're the one under attack with your character and your integrity and your trustworthiness being called into question. It is an incredibly painful, re-traumatizing experience with only the slightest hope of ever obtaining justice. Which goes back to what you mentioned earlier about pastors coming alongside families and helping in practical ways. That sounds like a nightmare that so many of us hope we never experience and hope to help alleviate for those who are. Absolutely. You're known for your heroism and leading the case against Larry Nasser. I'm wondering if you could share the story of the court case, which did eventually lead to his conviction. Could you tell us a little bit about that and the role that you played? So when I saw that that news article from the Indy Star, uh, my very first thought was I was right. USAG has been burying sexual abuse for decades, and we knew that. There had been an entire book written on the sexually abusive nature uh, of USAG. And my next thought was, this is it. This is the only chance I'm ever going to get. And so I wrote immediately to the newspaper and I told them my story and the evidence that I had. And I told them I'd be, I would come forward as publicly as necessary if they could just get the truth out. And in the process of corresponding with them, I redid some of my research on uh, Michigan Statute of Limitations and discovered there had been a legal change 
uh, that had lifted the statute of limitations so that I actually could file a police report uh, and have Larry prosecuted, you know, if we could get that far. And so within two weeks of sending that initial email to the Indy Star, we had packed the family up and we transplanted to Michigan for about two weeks so that I could file that police report and start the Title IX process. Title IX is a, is a corporate regulation for universities. And because the abuse happened on university property, that was an additional avenue of investigation that I could pursue. Uh, and actually, at the time I filed the police report, we did not know if the Indy Star story was ever going to publish. So for a couple of weeks after I filed that report, it was just Larry and I. And we didn't know if the Indy Star story was ever going to publish. But of course, that instantaneously put me in a position where I had I needed that story to come out. I desperately needed it to come out because I knew it was going to be necessary to be able to put enough public pressure on the institutions to even have a chance at stopping Larry. But it was also the last thing I wanted to have happen because I knew what it meant when my name and face and all of those details became an international story, which it did. Two weeks later, the Indie Star story published and it was international headlines by that night uh, with my photograph and a video testimony of the interview. And then for the next 18 months, I worked very closely with prosecutors and journalists from uh, literally all over the world, uh, walking them through the medical evidence, the legal statutes in Michigan, taking them through my case file. When I went up to Michigan, I had actually prepared a file of evidence. I had prior disclosures. I had um, character evidence from family members and prosecutors who knew me, who could attribute my trustworthiness. I had my medical records. I had journals that I had kept during the healing process. And I had gone through Michigan statute and case law to really put together the case for the prosecutor and to show them exactly why I thought Larry could be prosecuted and what evidence we had to do that. Uh, because I knew it was going to be a very uphill battle. I was incredibly blessed to have a phenomenal detective who did my interview and investigated the case. And very, very few victims have someone like I had in my court. But we actually almost lost even with that because once my story became public and the interview was done and around 36,000 images of child porn were found on Larry's computer, the county prosecutor who at the time had the case was actually going to cut Larry a plea deal even after everything I had done, knowing that there were over a dozen victims and that he was clearly a predator. She was going to allow Larry to plead guilty to possession of child porn on state charges rather than federal charges, which under Michigan law at the time would have resulted on a slap in the wrist in exchange for dropping all of the sexual assault charges for all of the police reports up to that point in time, which included mine and included the non-medical victim. And I was again blessed because the, uh, the head of the police department picked up the phone and he called the attorney general and he said, I need you to come in and take this case. And the attorney general sent his best prosecutor, Angela Povolitis. And Angie came and she talked to Andrea, Andrea Mumford, the detective who was investigating. And she said, I'll fight for every one of them. And that's what she did. And so the case was removed to the Michigan attorney general's office and Angie fought for us. And 18 months later, Larry pled guilty because over 85 women had come forward after 18 months of extensive international news coverage, Larry pled guilty, and then he was sentenced. And the sentencing hearing is really where most people tuned in, but very few people know what it took to get to that point and how many times we almost lost, even with everything I had done, even with my abuse being an international headline, we still almost lost because of the prosecutor. It looked like an overnight success, but it was years in the making when bringing him to justice. It was. It was years in the making. And very few survivors have that combination of circumstances that I had. We praise the Lord for his providence that Larry came to justice in this earth 
Uh, so many people don't get that. Speaking of justice, in your victim impact statement, which I recommend to all of our listeners, it's an incredible presentation of the gospel in such a public setting uh, where the gospel isn't often heard. And two things that come through in that statement, uh, one is your absolute dedication to seeking justice, and the other one is your absolute dedication to forgiving Larry Nasser. Could you help us understand how you bring those two concepts of justice and forgiveness together? Yeah, I think that interrelationship between justice and forgiveness is one of the most beautiful things we see in the gospel and in the redemptive story. Because as a victim, I really fought the idea of forgiveness for a long time because society so minimizes the damage and impact from abuse that I knew if I forgave Larry, the very fast response from a lot of the evangelical community would be, oh, look at the great things God has done. And they would completely skip over the pain and the devastation and how dark the abuse really was. And that's a misuse of forgiveness, and that's a misuse of God's sovereignty. But when I began to understand the idea really of penal substitutionary atonement and that reality that justice is always done and that forgiveness is not a release of the consequences, but rather release of my bitterness, my vendetta, and a desire to see my abuser saved, but that it does not diminish the depth of the damage. It does not diminish the depth of the evil, that justice is always done in the Christian framework that really put me in a position where I could be freed up to forgive, where I could understand the depth of my own redemption and also the depth of God's justice. You know, And I, I love the book of Revelation where we see that portrayed where John is, he's, you know, he sees the scroll, you know, and he's weeping and saying, Who can open the scroll? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And then the angels and the beasts around the altar, they start singing that the lion is worthy. But when John turns around to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, he finds in its place a lamb. And that is just the most incredible picture because it's that interrelationship, that marriage of justice and forgiveness, the lion of Judah who brings justice, but brings justice through his own sacrifice. And that's what makes forgiveness possible. You know, and I had already, I had already spoken so much about my own abuse. Uh, and I had already testified by the time we got to the sentencing hearing, I testified for almost three hours under oath during a preliminary hearing with Larry in the room. And so, you know, my thought process initially was what else is left to say to him? You know, Larry got to read all my journals. I had to testify in front of him for hours. Every detail of my abuse was an international headline. Uh, so what else was left to say? And really, that was all that was left. You know, Larry walked into courtroom numerous times during our court hearings carrying a Bible. And when he pled guilty to possession of child porn and was sentenced for the possession of child porn, uh, he talked about how all the good things that he was doing, you know, that he was helping inmates and that he prayed the rosary for all of us and that he wanted the community to move forward and heal. He actually painted his own guilty plea as something good that he was doing so that the community could move forward and heal. It was very clear that he was relying on those things to not be the person that he really was, to try to shield himself from the reality of what he had done, and to convince himself that he had redemption through those things. And I realized that the last thing I needed to tell him was that that was not where redemption came from. That redemption came from repentance. And I did not want him misusing my Savior and my Redeemer that way either. And so I felt that was the last thing that I needed to tell him. 
Well, what a beautiful, beautiful way to end. I do recommend that everyone listen to that statement. It is just fantastic. And we are so thankful for all the sacrifices you're making, Rachel, for all the work that you're doing to help and serve the church and to tell the stories of those who who haven't been heard. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you so much for joining us here on Ministry Network. We hope that maybe you'll come back and visit us again soon. I would love that. Thanks so much for having the conversation. Tune in next time to hear us talk with Pastor Joe Novenson about prayer. In the meantime, visit ministrynetwork.com to join our online community, where you can discuss this episode with other Christians and get exclusive access to online courses, book discounts, and more. You can also visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree to learn more about the new online offerings available at Westminster Theological Seminary.